Section 11 of Red Rubber, the story of the rubber slave trade on the Congo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Red Rubber, the story of the rubber slave trade on the Congo by Edmund Dean Morell. Section 11. Is there a redeeming feature? The Arab and the liquor traffic. The free state did not flinch before its perilous task, the destruction of the Arab power, and it has reaped the fruits of its energy. De Camp, New Africa. The suppression of the liquor traffic, with the suppression of the slave trade, is the finest title to glory which the Congo state possesses, Report of the Congo Commission of Inquiry. What, in the face of this history, can be urged on behalf of the Congo administration, which shall be held to extenuate in any essential respect the havoc it has wrought? In an interesting article which appeared in the Quarterly Review for January last, and whose authorship entitles it to the most careful attention, it is suggested after a generous acknowledgment of the present writer's justification for his charges, that I have perhaps stuck too exclusively to one side of the picture, that I have been disinclined to admit a redeeming feature. That criticism struck me very much. I had never thought that there was a redeeming feature which could be urged in the same breath with deeds too infamous to be forgiven by mercy itself. I had never realized sufficiently, until I saw that article, that the matter was one of debate. I have never until this day attempted to argue it. If I do so now, I beg the reader to believe that it is wholly from an impersonal point of view. If the Congo administration has any virtues, let them be set forth. By all means, let their claims be proclaimed, and the foundations upon which they rest subjected to analysis. What, then, is the other side of the picture? What is its relative value to the side we have gazed upon? The Congo administration claims to have suppressed the slave raiding carried on by half-caste Arabs in a portion of the Congo basin about one-fifth the size of the territories over which it now asserts dominion. The Congo administration claims to have prohibited the liquor traffic in its territories. The Congo administration claims to have built railways, put up the telegraph and telephone in certain districts, placed steamers on the upper river, built a large number of fine stations, and in this manner established civilization in the heart of Africa. The Congo administration claims to have introduced a regular system of justice in its territories. Travelers have borne witness to the good treatment of the natives in specific areas. That, I think, fairly covers the ground. Some of these assertions are true. Some are partly true and partly false. Some are altogether false. Even were they all literally true and could bear the test of examination, could they palliate, much less excuse, the wrongdoing of the past fifteen years? The Congo administration extirpated the Arab slave dealers. It did. 
the policy pursued by these semi-barbarians was atrocious. But was it so atrocious as the civilized barbarism which has replaced it? If not, what becomes of the virtues attributed by the Congo administration to itself as a consequence of its action? If you knock down a footpad who is ill-treating someone, and after having driven the aggressor away, proceed to deal more severely with his victim, what claim have you to righteousness? A British officer, Major A. St. H. Gibbons, who has travelled through the region where these half-caste Arabs formerly held sway, and whose references to Congolese administrative methods have been in some respects so impartial that King Leopold's press bureau has quoted him in its publications as a friend and defender, has written in this respect, to say that the status and lot of the native population has been in any way improved by the Belgian occupation seems to me more than doubtful. Remember that the above passage refers to that part of the Congo where the administration claims to have conferred untold blessings upon the natives by delivering them from Arab tyranny. Major Gibbons continues. Under Arab influence, the freedom of organized native communities was not interfered with. These people came to trade, to give and take, not to take only. Morally speaking, I will content myself here with the bare assertion that the natives are not the gainers by the Belgian occupation. What a tremendous indictment of the Congolese position as regards the Arab contention in these few lines. The Arab did not take only? The Congolese official does, and the natives are not the gainers under the change. This condemnation comes with added force when read with the accounts issued by the Press Bureau relating to the treatment of the natives under Arab rule. If they are worse off now, what in the light of those accounts must their condition be? No man is probably more competent than Dr. Hind who served with the Congo forces in the Arab campaign, to speak of the characteristics of their occupation before its downfall, and passages from his famous book are also quoted by the Press Bureau in substantiation of the claim to virtue. What is the verdict of Dr. Hind? Despite, he writes, their slave-raiding propensities during the forty years of their dominion, the Arabs had converted the Maniima and the Maliba countries into some of the most prosperous in Central Africa. The military and other operations conducted by the Congo administration on its eastern frontiers have necessitated the head carriage over the great caravan routes, formerly utilized by the Arabs, to convey their ivory to the east coast, of a gigantic mass of stores of all kinds. One of those great trade routes, that leading to the western shore of Lake Tanganyika, crosses the heart of the Maniima country mentioned by Dr. Hind, as one of the most prosperous under Arab rule in Central Africa. What does the report of King Leopold's own commission tell us on the present condition of the native peoples in the territories traversed by this route? It tells us that the native peoples are exhausted through the demands made upon them for head carriage in the transport of government material 
and are threatened with partial destruction. Captain Beccari, the king of Italy's envoy, travelled through that region three years ago. What has he placed on record? We have all the ghastly scenes of the slave trade, the collar, the lash, and press-gang. A lieutenant in the Italian army, whose official military records I have seen, and of whose bona fides I have personally assured myself, has recently returned to Italy, after spending nearly three years in this, the eastern province of the Congo Free State. Like so many of his compatriots, he entered King Leopold's African army without the faintest idea of its habitual tasks, or of the nature of the Congo administration itself. He writes, the caravan road between Kasango and Tanganyika is strewn with corpses of carriers, exactly as in the time of the Arab slave trade. The carriers, weakened, ill, insufficiently fed, fall literally by hundreds, and in the evening, when there happens to be a little wind, the odor of bodies in decomposition is everywhere noticeable. To such an extent, indeed, that the Italian officers have given it a name, Maniima perfume. After fifteen years of moral and material regeneration, a la Leopold, Maniima perfume. Where is the redeeming feature here? One might add a very great deal more in this connection, on the ethics of Arab versus Leopoldian slave raiding and trading. One could point to the fact that a brisk trade in slaves is carried on to this day by the revolted soldiery of the Congo state, through territory which the Congo administration professes to control, with the Bihian caravaneers from inland Angola. One could point to the testimony of Italian officers to the effect that, in the Arabized villages of a portion of the eastern provinces, the old markets for women slaves exist today as they did before, and that the inmates of the harems of Congo officers in that province have been bought and sold. One could point, inter alia, to Consul Caseman's report, and to the evidence placed before the Congo Commission of Inquiry, showing that the monstrous demands for foodstuffs levied upon the natives in certain districts under direct administrative influence compel the wretched people to sell their relatives into slavery in order to meet those demands. One could recall, as I have done, those official circulars signed by the Supreme Executive and torn from the abysmal and secret darkness of Congo infamy, after many years, by Monsieur van der Velde, the Belgian labor leader, fixing a bonus payable to officials for every man captured and forced into the Congo army and military camps, so much per head for a man of a certain stature, so much for every youth, so much per male child. One could assert and demonstrate abundantly that the raids upon villages by Congo officials and troops to seize recruits and laborers, that the raids upon villages by Congo officials and troops to capture women, delicate operations, to seize hostages, as the report of the Commission of Inquiry puts it, to punish and terrorize communities short in their supply of rubber, 
raids in the course of which massacres wholesale and atrocities unspeakable are the habitual accompaniments constitute proceedings indistinguishable from the raiding of arab bands one could prove did not one feel that the reader is already sick with proof that the congo free state in its basic claims practices and methods is primarily a huge slave-owning and slave-raiding corporation and that compared with the cold diabolicism of its policy arab excesses extending over an infinitely smaller area were tame the slave-raiding slave-dealing arab was at least constructive he destroyed but to build again he was a colonizer a ruthless one but still a colonizer Witness the huge centers of economical activity, of agricultural production he created. He belonged to the land. He had permanent interests in it. To have played the role of mere destroyer would have been to make waste of his habitation and his substance. But his successors, wielding absolute power in the country, are not attached to the soil. The objects of their employers in Europe are purely financial and foreign to Africa. Those employers seek a rapid accumulation of riches, and they spend those riches out of Africa. Africa, the people of Africa, play no part in the ends to which those riches are put. For the preservation of the races of Central Africa, it would have been better if Islam, which, as the leading authorities on Africa, British and French admit, breeds union for mutual aid among the black peoples, had thrown deep and abiding roots among the Bantu races of the eastern section of the Congo Basin. It would have given them that cooperation and adhesion by which alone they could have withstood the ravages of the special compound of slavery and regeneration patented by King Leopold in the name of Christianity. Civilization went frantic over the cruelty of the uncultured Arab half-caste. It has allowed the cultured European to impose upon an infinitely greater number of human beings a yoke more unbearable than the Arab laid. And that yoke remains. From the Arab to the gin bottle and the demijohn of rum, the Congo administration claims to have prohibited the liquor traffic in the upper Congo. The claim is untenable. The act of Berlin it was, which formally prohibited the importation of alcohol into the upper Congo, just as it prohibited it in northern Nigeria. The Act of Berlin did not prohibit the import of liquor into the lower Congo, and the Congo administration has not suppressed it there, nor put on duties as high as in some other West African dependencies. The two foremost Belgian authorities on the Congo question, Mr. A. J. Waters, editor of Le Mouvement Géographique, and Professor Catier of the Brussels University, pointed this out soon after the publication of the report of the Commission of Inquiry, in which the commissioners are made to say that the Congo administration deserves the thanks of the civilized world for sternly waving aside the temptation of paying its labor with gin. As that fine humanitarian and excellent wit, a rare combination, Grand Chasseur devant l'Eternal, 
Pierre Mille remarks in his and Chalet's Les Deux Congo. It is perfectly true that the Congo state does not pay the natives with a drink of brandy. It does not pay them at all. It is excessive to praise it even for that, because the Berlin Act explicitly forbids the import of alcohol. But no doubt the commissioners, seeing that the Congo state had violated all the other clauses of the Act, were amazed at its having respected this one. Apart from the inaccuracy of the claim, historically considered, the fusel oil of hypocrisy is present in larger proportions here than in all or nearly all the other philanthropic protestations of the Congo administration. This is not the place to discuss the African liquor traffic with any thoroughness. Personally, I have written against it very strongly. But the more one studies the accessible data, and the brighter the light which is thrown upon the various factors concerned, the more is the problem of the liquor traffic in Africa, as in Europe, seen to bristle with complications and difficulties. And without being converted thereby, one is impressed with the character and the weight of conviction of some of those who have opposed the general view as to the positive, hurtful effects European imported liquor has upon the primitive swamp and forest-dwelling communities of West Africa the more one is inclined to the belief that the true lines of reform are in the direction of improved quality and progressive rises in customs duty whenever the import is seen in a given period to average out above its normal and virtually stationary figure be that as it may the attempts of the congo administration to wash away its sins by dragging in on a historically false issue to begin with the liquor traffic argument can only fill the mind of an ordinary person who knows something of the facts with disgust it is better it seems for the regeneration of the native that he should be subjected to all the congo administration subjects him to rather than be allowed to spend a portion of his earnings in the luxury of a drink he has been robbed of all he possesses which is marketable against european or american merchandise he can buy nothing neither drink to drown in temporary oblivion his misery nor aught else for he owns nothing with which to buy and his labor belongs to king leopold and the administration which has robbed him calls heaven to witness that it has forced him with moral and material suasion to take the pledge similarly might the highwayman justify the rifling of his victim's pockets lest the latter were tempted to spend their contents on liquor at the nearest inn and by the same process of reasoning the highwayman could claim superior virtue in knocking his victim on the head as the best means of placing him forever out of the reach of temptation. End of section 11